0: I think if there's any moment that sums up the 1976 GOP convention in Kansas City, it's the image of a giant deflated balloon of an elephant sitting in the parking lot of the Kemp Arena where the convention was being held. They tried to bring it into the arena. They wanted it to fly high in the air above the delegates, a symbol of a united, strong party. But. It had gotten punctured on the way in, and it was too big to move. must have been a hard call dialing up the president of the United States to tell him, a member of your own party, that you'd rather have his job. But if anyone could do that call, it was the now former governor of California, Ronald Reagan, calling the president, Gerald Ford. If it could have happened in any year, it would have been 1976. The president was the first ever before or since to not be elected as either president or vice president. And Reagan, to hear former Secretary of the Air Force and his campaign worker in the 60s Tom C. Reed tell it, Reagan felt that he was the natural successor to Nixon. The significant politician, governor of California, a large state, the rising star in the primary, a rising star in the party who defeated a powerful Democrat. He was the one. He was defending the Nixon administration well into Watergate. Really right until the resignation of Nixon. Ford, yes, he was president, but he was a Washington usurper who happened to be in the right spot at the right time. Nixon had little choice over who to pick for vice president. He needed someone who would get approved by the Congress. Ford had never won anything else but his congressional district. And he was going to continue the moderate Republican policy, the quasi-Democratic policy. He had picked the traitor to Republicans, Nelson Rockefeller, as he's VP. So many conservatives urged Reagan to run. And eventually, he did. But he does have to call for it, and there's chitter-chatter, and Reagan says that he's launching a campaign. Ford knew about it. The White House had been tracking this and knew it was a possibility. It's not personal, Reagan says. I don't see how it could not be, Ford answers. I think it's necessary here to fully describe the magnitude of challenging even an unelected president. It had not happened in the Republican Party since, well, that ruckus between William Howard Taft and Theodore Roosevelt. When Reagan was two years old, not even Herbert Hoover drew a challenge from the party, although many people joked at the time no one wanted the job. Lee Edwards, a historian at the Heritage Foundation, somebody who'd be knowledgeable about this sort of thing, said Republicans like order and stability. They don't like surprises and they don't like contested conventions. That's true. The more Reagan started talking about running, phone calls came in for the good of the party, please, Ron, etc., etc. And right off the bat, there's a break in the circle of friends who had funded Reagan's speech for Barry Goldwater in 1964 and his gubernatorial campaigns. First break is from a trusted California friend, Holmes Tuttle, the owner of Tuttle Ford, the largest car dealership in Los Angeles. Big Reagan backer. He urges Reagan now to drop this campaign. It's traitorous. It's going to help the Democrats. Against a sitting president? Ron, have you gone mad? In fact, don't even take any of the money that you received. Give it back. But Tuttle didn't matter. Reagan, with some help from Nancy, would win the old California people back that were against him now. Reagan made his announcement. And though he doesn't mention in his announcement announcing his candidacy for the President's Union of the United States... In 1976, doesn't mention Ford at all. He says the nation couldn't afford four more years of business as usual in Washington. Well, who do you think that's about? The early campaigning would face some hiccups. Reagan took New Hampshire for granted, figuring Ford was unelected, didn't have much popular support. Reagan had the support of the Manchester Union, the conservative newspaper, which had a lot of influence there. So he went elsewhere while his team got the vote out. Big mistake. Ford's aides, including Chief of Staff Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Stu Spencer, who had been an old Reagan hand from the gubernatorial days. They were running Ford's campaign. Reagan had made the statement that federal programs should be shifted to the states. Now, this is a very common argument to make now, especially in the GOP, but not so much in the 70s. New Hampshire has no income, nor sales tax. And Reagan was about to shift $90 billion of cost to the state. Reagan lost New Hampshire, then, after Florida. So, right off the bat, Reagan loses the critical early state of New Hampshire, then in Florida. His position on making Social Security voluntary sounds nice to the human events crowd, sounds nice to the conservative base, but it's not so popular there. He loses Florida, then Illinois, where Ford's deadly ads threatened that Governor Reagan could not start a war, but President Reagan can. Loses Illinois. Loses the first five primaries. Voices from the parties comes in now. Ron, it's time. Get out of it. You can only hurt Ford now. You have to stop this, run. The campaign was a million dollars in the hole. Senior staff was worried that Reagan risked embarrassing himself now by staying in the race. Nancy Reagan tries to get him to bow out gracefully. Here's what Michael Deaver says. Reagan would have none of it. His primary challenge against Gerald Ford reflected not only his never-say-die optimism, but also that competitive streak that lurks behind. When Ford wins six primaries in a row, the media gets in on it. Time magazine said Reagan's Illinois campaign was lackadaisical while Ford worked the fences and police barricade like LBJ in his prime. A White House staffer was quoted as saying, even Rommel gave up the tanks when they ran out of gas. There was a little joke that Reagan might have been a Ford plant, making him stronger as a campaigner, showing that this president, who had been the butt of jokes Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase, for being a little clumsy, was now a formidable campaigner. Yet something changes. And it changes in North Carolina. One is Reagan gets some new staff, and one of his biggest supporters is a name that we know, Jesse Helms, a recent convert to the Republican Party, very popular senator in North Carolina, brings in some new staff. They decided to attack Ford hard right. Previously, Reagan's issues that he had brought up in the campaign had been mostly domestic. Now they go on foreign policy. He uses Kissinger's name instead of Ford Still a little bit uneasy about attacking a sitting president on foreign policy, but talks about him bowing and scraping before the Russians and giving up the Panama Canal, an issue he had not been that interested in before, but was one that Jesse Holmes, Senator from North Carolina, had brought up often. Things change. And the race goes south. In a good way for Reagan. He wins North Carolina, Virginia, Texas, Georgia south carolina arkansas idaho and of course california reagan you might say in sports got hot late after may 1st 10 states Hmm. oops after may 1st of nine states 10 go to reagan now what do you do (laughs) this is charles gibson at the white house President Ford has been heavily involved in pre-convention activities for the past week now. His schedule in recent days was kept to a minimum so that he could maintain personal control over his forces in Kansas City and the platform fight. But all of the convention preparations have been done with a minimum of publicity. Mr. Ford has stayed pretty much out of sight for the past week, almost as if there was something degrading about being in a political fight. Ford's picking up delegates in many of the states. Reagan's winning some primaries. It's close, but he lost so much in the beginning. It's a simple story, according to the media. Ford has more delegates. Reagan, nice try, but he's not getting in. There's no new delegates available to Reagan. He has most of the conservatives lined up by the time you get to July 1976. CBS News is ready. They are about to nominate. CBS News is ready. They are about to announce that Ford has the nomination. Now, you have to understand, this is a time of three networks, not 52. And they're going to make this announcement on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite. But Reagan has a crafty aide, John Sears. He had helped Nixon lock up the 68 convention when he was just 27 years old. Then the Nixon people, John Mitchell, etc., got a little jealous of his ambition kicked him out. He was hired by the Reagan folks in 76. He was bold and kept things close to his chest. That's something that's going to get Sears fired from the 1980 campaign that'll happen later. But in 76, the media was eating him up. The game was never over for him. He was like a cagey basketball coach of an underdog team that keeps coming back, but never leading. Sleeves rolled up, and you couldn't quite believe him, and the media started to pick up on this. He, at one point, he makes up that Reagan has five more delegates than is even needed for the nomination. For two weeks, this goes on. He's never able to substantiate it. This while the Ford people are only claiming delegates that they have either written commitments, verbal commitments to the president himself, or have announced publicly that they're supporting Ford. Backs to the wall. What does he do? You are winning. So he goes to Washington journalist Robert Novak. Novak says to him, you have no math that's going to get you the nomination at this convention. He says, yes, we do. Reagan is going to get delegates from the Northeast states. What, Novak? That's impossible. How are you going to get delegates from the Northeast states? Your candidate's appealing to the South. He's the conservative part of the party. Ford has those locked up. That's a crazy idea. We're going to name a running mate early. Reagan doesn't exactly approve this plan before Sears does it. Reagan and the campaign at the time gave a lot of leeway to Sears. But he does approve it, and Sears finds a U.S. senator in Pennsylvania, Richard Swiker. He is, we'd probably say today, a liberal Republican. Then they would probably say a moderate Republican. Novak, writing a few days later after the announcement, is pretty sure Reagan has never heard of the person before. Sears interviews him. Schweiker's excited. He's actually a committed Ford delegate, but obviously now he's going to switch. Maybe, maybe he can get the he is a senator from Pennsylvania. Maybe he can get the rest of Pennsylvania to switch as well, and some northern delegates. Well, something happens with this announcement, and that is that southern delegates, who had been committed to Reagan, are in many cases outraged by this. Jesse Helms is kind of loyal. He's reluctantly, grimly approving the choice, but he's. Howard Phillips, conservative caucus, says Reagan betrayed those who believed it. Richard Swiker, as it would become more investigated, was not just kind of a little bit of a moderate on a few issues. He had a 100% rating from the AFL-CIO. Now, people going into the Kansas City Convention are going to note that Jimmy Carter, at this time, who got his nomination already in New York, is going to name Walter Mondale Liberal Center. He only has a 93% rating. Southern delegate says the reason Reagan chose Schweiger is because Mondale wasn't available. Idaho uh, an Idaho conservative says, I'm sick. A significant Ohio Republican says, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. A Mississippi delegate who did not drink tells Reagan and Nancy and the Schweikers, by the way, in this meeting, that when he heard the news, the first thing he did was pour himself a glass of bourbon. And he had some other choice words. <laughs> Yet... It's an interesting, wacky move. Reagan, former football player, Hail Mary pass. Yet, there is one result that happens from this, and that's CBS News does not make that announcement. No one calls the nomination for either Ford or Reagan going into the convention. From New York, this is ABC News. You're now, John Hambrick. Good evening. Just a half-weekend away from the opening of the GOP National Convention, backers of both President Ford and Ronald Reagan are claiming their candidates have enough delegates to win on the first ballot. Ford and Reagan arrive in Kansas City tomorrow. As for what they did today... About 150 UFO supporters of Ronald Reagan are going to Kansas City by bus. Before their departure this morning, the candidate dropped by to join them for breakfast and wish them a safe and successful journey. They expressed the same wish for him. William Jennings Bryan once said that a convention is a wonderful place to study the human animal. He wasn't alive to see the scene at Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, held in a modernist building with the trusses on the outside for the best view. Thousands of delegates, too many for the downtown Kansas City hotels to support, strung all over the city. Journalists said, the men have the look of successful business and nude car franchises. The women have the aura of beauty parlor habit and bridge table. I don't know what's going to happen. No one does. Our people who are back there in Kansas City now say that it is a complete limbo. It is in the hands of the uncommitted. And uh, I guess there hasn't been a convention like this. Uh, you know, with history of conventions. Candidates and surrogates. Jesse Holmes for Reagan, John Connolly for Ford, visiting hotel rooms, trying to get stray delegates. And near the convention, this place is just a beacon for everyone of the 1970s who has a cause. Anti-animal cruelty activists, Jesus freaks, people waving straw hats, wearing Ford masks, wearing Reagan masks, a large billboard that said, President Ford... Celebrities, Tony Orlando, there for Ford, and Pat Boone, there for Reagan. Alf Landon, the GOP nominee from 1936 against Roosevelt, is here in Kansas City in a wheelchair. A Cherokee Indian named Princess Pale Moon sings the national anthem for the convention. Texans for Reagan in red, white, and blue hats. A person in a styrofoam Snoopy outfit. Snoopy's running for president on behalf of Dolly Madison Cakes. Their are allegations instantly. The delegates are being bribed. Certainly, they were being imbibed. Plenty of drinking going on. Joseph Kors supported Reagan and made sure his headquarters and his supporters got enough beer. Nelson Rockefeller spoke at the convention, given a silent reaction. Barry Goldwater speaks, but he's no longer the hero of 64 to the conservatives. Now he's called a sellout for being neutral between Reagan and Ford and praising both candidates. He later said Reagan supporters were vicious. As Rick Perlstein said in his excellent The Invisible Bridge, extremism in the defense of liberty became a vice. The candidates' wives, Betty and Nancy, are each introduced to thunderous applause, all watched by the media. People shout, we with the president! Others shout, Reagan! Not everybody could pronounce his name right at this time reagan reagan they shout a female black minister talks to the president and decides she's for him then talks to pat boone the now conservative christian singer and he convinces her to go for reagan as the delegates assemble there's bob dole at the rostrum he attempts to take the official gop 1976 convention picture and get the delegates to smile After three attempts, finally, the delegates calmed down enough for the picture to be taken. See, each candidate came to this convention in Kansas City with an equal, just roughly equal amount of delegates. I mean, Ford had about 50 more. Most media reports had that. There are a couple of factors, though, that made it difficult to count delegates. First, you had a number of uncommitted delegates, 150 or so, enough to make a difference between Reagan or Ford. And these uncommitted delegates were not bound by any state rules. They could vote for anyone they wanted. Then you had Trojan horse delegates. Delegates who were at Kansas City by virtue of a federal office they may have had, or for the state party, for their loyalty, but who personally felt much more in line with Reagan. On a first ballot, they were bound. On a second ballot, not so much. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. A few of these people might just break the law and vote for Reagan. This was suggested by the Reagan camp. Vote their hearts, vote their conscience, even if their state bound them. There were, for instance, 24 or so North Carolina delegates for Ford. What law could bind them in Kansas City? How many divisions did the RNC chair have? It might be considered an act of civil disobedience. But if Reagan had ideology... Ford had the office of the presidency. A number of delegates owed the president for some kind of favor. Favor to them, favor to friends, favor to the party. They owed their state parties for some kind of favor. Others sought to have something to owe Ford for, as little as a ride on Air Force One. Or some demands that a job be approved. Most of the latter were refused. And the president had a secret weapon, a quiet operator, James Baker. Leading up to the convention, he traveled the nation campaigning for Ford. He developed biographies of all the delegates and rated them according to how likely they were to go for Ford or Reagan. He had 12 regional chairs across the country for recruiting them, politicians, state party chairs and the like, loyal to Ford, who knew politics in their regions. Baker gets Ford for a month before the convention to de- to devote 30 minutes of his busy presidential day to call chairman and to call delegates himself. It may seem new that a campaign might try to rustle up stray delegates in all parts of the country where the other side thinks the primaries and the convention are the place to focus on. This happened in 76. Here's what Baker says. The contest would go to the outfit that did the best job of keeping its herd in line while picking off strays from the other side. It was my job to stalk the uncommitteds. Sometimes, however, they stalked me. Baker spoke of a congressman who would give his vote just for a spot on the FCC, a delegate who wanted control of patronage in the St. Louis area in exchange for his vote. Just have all the federal jobs go through me for a while. There was a man who wanted a job at HUD in exchange for his vote. Still another wanted a federal building named after him. Then Baker noted that Brooklyn delegate who simply asked for cash. He refused all of these, but kept them in a file of improper requests. He counts about 17 of blatant ones. But even though he wouldn't do this kind of quid pro quo obvious thing, in a legal way, they were aggressive. Meetings at the White House with delegates were certainly on the table. Invitations to state dinners. Celebrating the bicentennial of the country with the president. That happened. Few delegates ride in Air Force One. A few delegates dine with the Queen Elizabeth at a state dinner. Yet the simple truth was, despite Reagan's appeal... And Ford's political savvy and power of his office, neither of these candidates come to the GOP convention with a locked majority. And so all eyes are focused on the Kemper Arena. As this meeting's occurring, this is a much more conservative party than even in 1972. States have changed. More southern states have gone Republican. There are more Republican office holders in the South. They're influencing this convention now what do you do to try to shake him on a first ballot? Well, John Sears is going to do everything he can. A few days before the opening of the entire convention, while there's just some preliminary meetings, while some of the Ford delegates are eating barbecue in Kansas City, the Reagan delegates quietly get control of the convention platform subcommittees and have a vote that allows each subcommittee to pick new chairs, not the ones appointed by the party. This enables them to put Ford's campaign in a bind. And now they introduce platform issues that are favorable to Reagan. One denying the Equal Rights Amendment, which was a big issue in 1976. Jesse Helms issues an anti-abortion platform. But Sears's real stroke is a morality and foreign policy plank, which would oppose, in principle, some of Ford's and certainly Kissinger's detente policy, calling on the U.S. to take a harder stance with the Soviet Union. Now you've got an issue. If Ford opposes these platform issues, he might have a problem now with the first ballot with some of these shaky delegates. In the Rules Committee of the Convention, which also meets slightly before the convention opening, Sears has something else. It's called 16C. He doesn't get the change. Ford has enough people on the rules committee to get it voted down. But 16C is a rule demanding that all candidates have to name their vice presidential intentions now. This could be deadly to Ford. See, one of the problems Reagan is having is he announced a running mate and now he's got issues with his base. They want Ford to experience the same pain. He wants half the convention upset with Ford over his choice of a nominee. But secondly some of these people who might be Ford's choice for vice president are delegates. In fact, some are heads of delegations. He's naming all kinds of names. He has about 10 people that he might name as the vice president. Pick one and you've got a lot of disappointed people and who knows where they're going to go. So when this is voted down 16C in the rules committee, there's a sigh of relief from the Ford camp. That's only because they're not aware of the Rules, or at least how the rules are going to be used, John Sears is actually celebrating because once a rule is voted down, you can adopt a petition for a minority report to go to the floor and then the whole convention votes. Sears wanted this to be voted down. He wanted this issue on the floor for a full vote. Now, there's something else going on here. There's a lot of attention focused on the Mississippi delegation. Mississippi is one of these southern states that only recently converts to the Republican Party. Sixty-four, and you don't have much of a GOP effort there. A small GOP party has started. I mean, most people in Mississippi are are establishment or Democrats, and it's headed up by a fellow named Clark Reed, and he's a businessman. He's a fairly conservative person, but not an ultra-right. Consulting a lot with the Nixon White House. He's initially for Reagan, but when Reagan picks Schweiker, he uses that as an excuse to then give his support to Ford. Pictures himself as something as a kingmaker. He's taking every interview with the TV cameras that he can. He has this distinctive tacky sports coat, black watch plaid with gold elephants all over it. This is going to end up in in photographs and on a video of the convention. In fact, 2004 GOP convention in New York, Clark Reed brings it back. But he's one of these people who are pliable. Now, he gave his verbal commitment to the president of the United States. He's, he feels he's got to honor that. He's getting a lot of pressure from people in Mississippi, from the other Reagan delegates, and that, that you're betraying us and this is going to hurt you politically back in the state and all of that. Still, Ford's got great convention managers. When he arrives in Kansas City in Air Force One, comes down with his family, it's a big moment. One by one, some of the little tricks disappear. The ERA and the abortion issues are actually settled when a neutral platform is adopted. Phyllis Shafley, who is... Strongly anti-abortion, strongly against the URA, decides that it's better to get Reagan the nomination than to pursue these issues, so she backs down. A minority report goes out. The Republican Party's not going to take a stand on these issues and resolve people to decide them in their own conscience. The morality and foreign policy plank is not defeated, but Ford's aides, notably Dick Cheney, who's his chief of staff, Says, just support it. It doesn't attack Ford directly. He's not attacking his own foreign policy. He is, in a sense, but he's not attacking it in name. When you're president, you can do what you want. Don't raise this issue. Support the morality and foreign policy plank. And so that issue's down. And so what really happens in Kansas City is it's a vote on the Rule 16C. Although it stirred up some trouble. Ford's able to win that vote. There are some Reagan delegates who feel that it was kind of a Mickey Mouse issue to pick. He can't get the same support for 16C that he even gets for his own nomination. Ford wins. On the first ballot, there is no second ballot in 1976. Where does all of this take us? Obviously, the series, a dozen Ronald Reagans, we're looking at different aspects Of Reagan, and also this is my history can beat up your politics, and so I'm looking at current events and applying some history for better understanding. And there's obviously some talk, and currently, as I record this, about a contested convention on the Republican side, and so I think this talking about the 1976 convention in Kansas City, the really the last contested one, has a purpose for understanding Reagan, and also a purpose for understanding current events. But the reason I think it's a big event for understanding Ronald Reagan, the politician, and the modern GOP party, is that I'm not sure there was another politician in 76 that would have taken on Ford. I think it reveals how stubborn, headstrong, you might say, Reagan felt. Conventions like, you don't run against a sitting president, or this will be bad for the party, I don't think we're primary in his thinking. In an election after a landslide for the GOP and then a scandal, the party duked it out. And Gerald Ford won, but his victory was short. And the trade was that year's nomination for a more conservative Republican party. In order to compete with Ford at that convention, Reagan would go full out on policies and if you look at Central America, for instance, it might be the 1976 convention where he was bound to a set of policies that would eventually get him into some trouble. Yet Reagan also showed something else, this ability to compromise. Somebody who is an ideological conservative in most cases would not pick a liberal like Richard Swiker, who actually Reagan ended up making his uh, Health and Human Services secretary later. It appalled the base. But Reagan somebody wasn't somebody who was always taking the temperature of the base. When there was a group, including some of the California people that backed him for governor, you know, knocking on his suite after he loses the nomination, and say, we've we got to get you to be Ford's vice president. He's absolutely not interested in that. And he signals to the Ford camp, please don't ask. And the Ford camp doesn't. They choose Senator Bob Dole of Kansas. In terms of current events, This is the last time that there was a serious contest at a party convention. Yeah, sure, there's a couple of rumblings, you know. In 1980 in New York, there was an effort to unbound delegates. It didn't get very far so that uh, Carter delegates could vote for Kennedy. Didn't get very far. 1984, you almost had a convention between Hart and Mondale. So I think you have in this the last a situation where such a contest occurred, and I think the things to think about are obvious from 1976. There's going to be, there's a lot of rule changes. There's much more firmness on delegates being bound to the point that the current RNC chair said that he won't even read into the record a delegate being unfaithful. So if they're bound for the first ballot, you also see in this 76 convention that so much of the action is what happens in all of the rules committee and platform committees that, that meet even before the convention that can try to game things and throw things off. And there's going to be some pretty aggressive wooing by the campaigns of delegates if they're needed. There's the roll call of states, and by this point... Because the 16C didn't go Reagan's way, it's pretty much known that Ford has the control of delegates, control of the convention, control of the nomination. You know, votes on rules or platforms by the floor of the convention can signal who's really running things in a contested convention. And that's the case in 1976. There will only be a first ballot, and Ford is nominated with 1,187 to 1,070. 52.5% for Ford. 48.3% of the delegates for Reagan. Joe Ford goes down to the podium to thank the convention for this nomination. But it's here that something odd happened. And he asks that my good friend Ronald Reagan, please come down to the stage. And here's something to think about. It's 1976. 1976. The Democrats, the opposition party, have just had their convention nominated Jimmy Carter. And though that was a contested primary, all of the people who ran against Jimmy Carter and some party leaders and representatives of different interest groups in the Democratic Party all stand behind their presidential nominee, Jimmy Carter, when he's nominated in New York. And it's a great convention. The Republicans are desperate to have a similar moment, but their contest went all the way to the convention. Gerald Ford, the President of the United States, come down to the podium to thank the delegates for this nomination. And there's some talk. Is Reagan going to come up with him? But Reagan, Nancy Reagan, and Ron Reagan Jr. are all seated behind a plexiglass wall up above, and they plan to watch Ford's speech. When Ford looks at Reagan and calls for him and asks for my good friend Ronald Reagan to please come down and say a few words... And depending on what account you read, Reagan Camp hadn't expected this. So now the President of the United States who just won the convention is calling down the person who he beat. Here's how Ron Reagan Jr., now an 18-year-old, remembers it. I sat down with my family in the high roller box. Until this point, my father had never lost a race. While far from the stereotypical male, aggressively competitive, dad didn't like to lose. Now Ford was now waving. It's his night. I remember him saying, let him have it. Mike Deaver remembers an aide from the president coming to the booth and being sent away. That's a disputed account. Minutes pass. Delegates are screaming. Now you have the Ford people and the Reagan people both screaming for Reagan. Viva! Olay! This is a convention that was enthusiastic for him even if it didn't vote for him. The president's still gesturing. The clock is ticking. Ron Reagan Jr. says. He stood with my mother behind the plexiglass banner and put a finger to his lips and asked the crowd to shush. That didn't work. That just made them more insistent. I remember thinking, how long can he keep Ford waiting here? At a certain point, it's not going to look like great theatrics. It's going to look like a television snub. Ultimately, he had no choice. And as he went down to the arena floor, my mother recalled, as they rushed downstairs, him saying, I haven't the foggiest idea of what to say. Reagan delivers a speech to the crowd that has them crying, uses the opportunity to tell a story. If I could just take a moment, I had an assignment the other day. Someone asked me to write a letter for a time capsule that is going to be opened in Los Angeles 100 years from now. We live in a world in which the great powers have poised and aimed at each other horrible missiles of destruction, nuclear weapons that can in a matter of minutes arrive in each other's country and destroy virtually the civilized world we live in. And suddenly it dawned on me Those who would read this letter a hundred years from now will know whether those missiles were fired. They will know whether we met our challenge. Whether they have the freedoms that we have known up until now will depend on what we do here. Mr. President. There was an enormous ovation, and it was lost on no one, no one, as the TV cameras panned to various delegates, some with their mouth open in awe that some were regretting their choice that night. Ronald Reagan Jr. again. I expected that he'd congratulate Ford. I expected maybe he'd roger the opposition. When was the last time you had a runner-up, a Republican, no less, use his consolation limelight? Stump for nuclear disarmament? This is part five.